been ready, right? Okay, so this morning is January 24th, 2010. You can turn in your Bibles to Mark 10. Our message this morning is called A to Z, Apathy to Zeal. Yeah, how about that? I've asked the Lord many times for one of those messages that everybody would rally around and get very excited about and confetti would fall from the ceiling and cheerleaders would jump up and down and we would build bigger gymnasiums and eat more donuts and have pizza nights. I have never gotten one of those messages from the throne room. I don't know where the other guys are getting them, whether they're coming from the throne room or not. All I can tell you is that's not what he tells me when I'm in his presence. In fact, almost everything that he speaks to me has to do with repentance and being filled with his power. I thought I was strange, but it seems that through the years, God keeps adding people that are of like mind to that, that repentance brings power. He said, but Eric, I've repented. Well, the process of sanctification demands that on a regular basis, you are doing what God called you to do. And it just so happens that you're hardwired not to. So this requires a constant changing process in your life. In fact, it's why we put on the sign, Life-Changing Ministries. Our goal is not to reach the masses. I mean, I hope we do, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to reach the people that God brings upon our path, one life at a time, and to make a difference. And if that this year is Nolan, then praise God, what a good year it had been. I hope that the one life touches many lives. And uh, for that reason... I don't think you can determine our success by church growth. I think you can measure it in the extent to which people are being obedient to God's Spirit. That's my desire. That may mean that occasionally you step a step or two backwards, right? Uh, You could say it's revival in reverse, but that's not the case. You can't measure revival by the number of attendees. Otherwise, there's a church right down the road based on the teachings of Joseph Smith. And uh, if they have one more person this Sunday than last Sunday, they would call that a success. I would call it a terrible tragedy. I want to talk to you about the word apathy. Apathy comes from a Greek base. In Greek, when you put the word A in front of something, it can mean without. Without pathos is the compound word. A, pathos, is where we get the word apathy in English. And pathos has to do with emotion. Struggle, feeling, interest, concern has to do with the things that involve our lives. You might say that apathy is the state of indifference or the suppression of emotions such as concern or excitement, motivation, and passion. An apathetic individual, according to Wikipedia, is one who has an absence of interest or concern to emotional, social, and physical life. They might also exhibit an insensibility or sluggishness. When you think of apathy, sometimes you just think of a depressed person. But one of the things we want to talk about today is apathy towards the things of God. Find out that a lot of times what people are motivated in, what they're excited about, has nothing to do with the things that God is excited about. The natural state of a human being is apathy. We are not born with a desire to help everybody around us. We are not born enthusiastic about giving our stuff away. My little girl almost had a full-scale meltdown during worship 
because one of her toys fell behind the chair. We are not born wanting to see things go away from us. We are not born believing it is more blessed to give than to receive. We are born with a corrupt nature that says exactly the opposite. So we are apathetic towards the things of God. Zeal, on the other hand, is, it's also a Greek word in its base. Zelos, Z-E-L-O-S. But whether in Greek or in English, it means an eagerness and ardent interest in the pursuit of something. My hope is within this time period that I have you, whether it's a decade or whether this is your one and only visit to our church, to have you consider our natural state versus becoming zealous for the things of God. When I was first born again, people said, oh, that's good, Eric. I mean, it's great that you love Jesus, but don't go being one of those zealots. And I learned to define that as anybody that loves Jesus more than they did. And friends, it wasn't hard to love Jesus more than they did. They had carved out for themselves a comfortable religious setting that removed from them all need to do anything. They had reduced the gospel simply to what we believe. The gospel has very little to do with a statement of creed. It has everything to do with deeds. Everything to do with how you live. The book of James goes so far as to say, I will show you my faith by my deeds. You do not find that in the American church. When you examine some of the scripture we're going to look at today, and I'm going to limit it to about five, and you know how unusual that is for me. I'm doing that because I want you to be able to think deeply about each Scripture. It is appalling when comparing the Scripture with church life. It is appalling where they were, what they were doing in the Word, where their interests were, versus where average nominal Christianity is, and even fired up little storefront churches just like us. The things they prayed for, the things they felt moved to do, in many cases are completely different than us. Are you in Mark 10? Yes. Look at Mark 10. We're going to start in the 17th verse. As Jesus started on His way, a man ran up to Him and fell on His knees before Him. Good teacher, He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call Me good? Yeshua answered. No one is good except God alone. Doesn't that seem like a strange way to enter into a conversation? It really does. When looking at this, do you have a hard time with it? Isn't Jesus good? Yeah. I mean, I would say Jesus is good. Would you not? Is Steve the only one that agrees with me? Or y'all all scared to speak? Jesus is, good. Jesus is good. So why does Jesus challenge it? Well, John 2.23-2.25 speaks about this. and says, Jesus refuses to entrust Himself to men... Because He knew what was in them. Romans goes on to say, nothing good dwells in the flesh. So why did Jesus challenge this? He's basically challenging the man saying, why is it that you are calling me good? Is it because you understand that I am God? Or I'm in God? Or God is in me? The man didn't have that understanding. He was simply calling Him good. The basis of salvation starts when you realize that in human beings, in mankind, there is not anything that's good. Your natural state is apathetic towards the things of God, meaning you are indifferent in your natural selves to the things God wants you to do. Think about Eve, all the way back in the garden, right? How good was her life? 
I mean, she had a dead sexy husband. One of a kind. She lived in a garden-like setting. Was she content to walk with God? No. She wanted something different. Something more. And who did she want it for? Herself. You could say the same thing about Adam. It has nothing to do with the sexes. It has everything to do with mankind. We don't have inside of us something good. There was a group of philosophers that rose up and came up with a theory called tabula rasa. Human beings are a blank slate and their environment determines what they are. Nothing could be further from the truth than if you've ever had children, all you need to do is watch the first words that come out of their mouth. Things like, mine! <laughs> Hit! My little kids gave each other black eyes as soon as they were able to throw punches. <laughs> Been years since I gave anybody a black eye. They did not learn that from watching me. It was their mother. <laughs> I made sure she was safely out of the building. My point here is that the guy calls... Uh-oh, she just walked in. My point here is that Jesus calls the man into account. Why are you calling me good? Is it because you recognize something different in my nature? Let's keep going. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Isn't it interesting that Jesus quotes to him six commandments? All six commandments in some way have to do with how we treat people around us. Don't murder them. <laughs> Don't steal from them. Don't defraud them. Everything that Jesus spoke to the man had to do with how you treat everyone else. Why did Jesus not simply say, believe something? He's telling him about the right way to live. And when you read this in Deuteronomy... God gave these very commandments to mankind because our hearts were inclined in the wrong direction. And He wanted to show us the right way to live. Why are children told to honor their father and mother? It's not the natural state for a child. The natural state for a child is to feel completely entitled to everything that mom and dad do. Completely entitled. No matter what the case. And to resent any form of correction towards mom and dad. So a child has to be taught to reciprocate a parent's love. It doesn't come naturally. Love naturally flows downhill, not uphill. Why do you think we call God our Heavenly Father? He loves us. He doesn't have to be taught to do that. But you must be taught to love Him. We feel entitled to everything that He would give us, and we resent any correction He brings in our lives. Or did you think we were just talking about your children a moment ago? Boy, isn't it easy to see their flaws and miss ours? This is another problem with the human condition. We are indifferent in our base nature to the things that God wants. That's our natural state to be disconnected, to be indifferent to others. But God is the source of everything that is good. And He will change you to eagerly, to ardently, and with great interest pursue the needs of of others. So when this man comes and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? After we get the good question out of the way, Jesus begins telling him about how to become interested in other people. How to care about them. You, here's, here's the outer court of the scenario, if you will. 
If God is up there somewhere, way in the back of this building as far as you could get, the first step towards Him is not wanting to hurt other people. But if you want to get into the Holy of Holies, it's not just not wanting to hurt other people, it's caring when they are hurt, wanting to prevent it, wanting to see them healed. This man begins by retorting this question with, Hey, I've kept all of those. I never hurt anybody. That is not the point. The point of the commandment is not just not to hurt anybody. The point is to teach you to love your fellow man. How many times do we just throw up our heads and say, But I didn't do anything wrong. Did you fix anything that was wrong? Did you care about those that were wrong? Or are you indifferent to your brother's needs? I walked past a room at my work the other day. And I just saw a certain glint in a woman's eye. Now, I can't tell you how sometimes I know these things other than it's the Holy Ghost. But I walked in and I said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And in moments she was crying and telling me, I don't know why I'm telling you this stuff. I said, I do. I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I'm in love with Him. And He sent me here to bring you hope. In a few minutes she is crying in the office praying and asking how to get her life right with God. You have to care, saints. You cannot watch the world go to hell around you and just say, Bless me, Lord! Bless me, Lord! It's all about me! Bless me! Somebody once foolishly said, I, I've tried tithing and I've, I've tried to do this and ever since I did, things, things have not gone well. Really? Well, why did you do those things? Did you do them because they were the right thing to do or did you do them so that things in your life would go well? You understand how motivated we are? It's always self. We're apathetic towards everyone else. It's always self-interest. So much so that we've perverted the gospel into a self-interest gospel. Come serve Jesus because of all He will do for you. When you fall in love with Jesus, He will do this and this and this. I mean, we're like tour guides for Jesus land. And when you come to our church, man, it's got the best this and the best that. We do know we even have a Starbucks in our lobby. The real church would meet in a dungeon and never ask Jesus, what are you going to do for me? He's already done everything for you. They meet to find out, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Why are we so indifferent to that? Because we're hardwired the wrong way. And there's pressure all around us to conform to that image. So much so that even if a man is a godly preacher, his need to raise funds causes him to appeal to human greed rather than the needs of other people. No longer do you hear messages that say, hey, we need you to give money to help this person. What we hear is a message that says, Elizabeth, in 2010, if you'll give $2,010, God will multiply it over. How many times will it take, baby, to get you to give? Seven times? A hundred times? A hundredfold! We have a winner! Carnival Christianity is parlor tricks. If it works that way, why don't I give Elizabeth the $2,000 and wait for God to give me the hundredfold return? We're so blessed, right? How many times have you heard that? We're Americans. We're so blessed. We're so blessed. I want to ask you to think about something for a minute. How blessed are you? Probably in your mind, if you're being honest, you think, well, I've got a pretty nice house, you know. I got this, I got that. Didn't the Word say it's more blessed to give than to receive? Mm. Under that definition, how blessed are you? Mm. What did you give away this month? In what way did you hurt so that someone else could be relieved of hurting? 
How blessed are you? What kind of blessings do you want? The lie of the dead, formless gospel with no power in it? Or the kind of gospel that will empty you of self and fill you with the power of God? I want that one. Listen to what he says. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Where does that tell you who Jesus' heart was? Was he apathetic towards this man's needs? Sometimes this is preached as, you know, this rich young ruler came. Good teacher. Oh boy, you don't know anything you're talking about. Why do you call me good? Go sell everything you have. What Jesus said to him was motivated out of a sincere, pure desire for his well-being. How powerful is that? He loved him. And because he loved him, he told him something. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. <laughs> it is so funny. I encourage you to do something. If you're the kind of people that know what a net Bible is, or you have a... Uh, I was in a brother's house the other day who had some nice commentaries in his house. If you have those things, go look this verse up. You know what you're going to see 90% of? This applies specifically to that young man and does not necessarily apply to everyone else. What? You're going to see it over and over and over. And here's why. It is so searingly convicting to read that to enter the kingdom you need to sell everything you have, isn't it? Because what have we not done? Sold everything we have. And so we want to allegorize it. We want to spiritualize it. We want to say, oh, well, this was his particular problem. And because it was just his problem, Jesus said that to him. But he didn't say that to everybody. That's what the commentaries say. It's even what the footnotes in my Bible say. And there's even a note from one pastor who sometimes understands and sometimes doesn't, written in handwriting that looks a lot like mine, that says, while this applies to every believer, these exact circumstances may not reply to, or apply to every individual. I wonder what I was thinking. I began thinking about this verse as a man was preaching the other night. Which of the disciples did Jesus speak to and say, Hey man, I kind of like you. I like the boat you got. Dad's business is pretty cool. Bring all of that crap with you and come follow me. <laughs> Which one did he ever say that to? Which one did he ever go to and say, Hey man, you got so many skills. You got it going on. A musician? Wow, we could use those talents. We'll build bigger churches, bigger auditoriums. Bring all of that and come follow me. You won't find a single disciple that did not have to leave everything to follow him. So I'm going to ask you a question that hurts. Are you a disciple? What did you leave to follow Jesus? A man asked me that the other night. And I'll be honest, it stung a little bit and then I began to think about it. I had a pretty long list of things that I left. But it's still stuck. You know why? Because since I left those things, I've accumulated more. Can you imagine if year one, Jesus, we're following you, buddy. We finally got nothing but you, Jesus. You're everything. Oh, there's something I like. There's something. Oh, I got that. Jesus, we're still following you. <laughs> How about that? How are you going to carry your cross and carry all those things? How are you going to carry your cross ready to die any moment 
are you going to have? They got a new Cadillac, what are you going to have? And God wants you to have it. Don't you want the drug dealer's vehicle? No, I don't. I don't. Do you see how silly it's become? Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, He looked to those who had given up everything in the face of one who could not give up everything. He said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. The disciples were amazed at his words, and Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If Jesus said something twice in the same conversation, how important do you think it is? It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. You hear that? A rich man. <laughs> Oh, God, this is going to hurt. Let's think about the globe for a minute. If you had to think about a representative population of China, a representative population of Africa, a representative population of Afghanistan. In fact, you crowd that representative population into this room. Who's the rich man? Who's the rich man? 10%. You're in the top 10% in the world just by living in this country and wearing the clothes you wear. Top 10%. Who is the rich man? Well, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Really? How blessed are you? I see that you've accumulated. Is it headed the other direction? Or are you just building bigger barns? Eric, are you saying it's wrong for me to have things? Isn't that a great question? What do you think motivates a question like that? Do you think maybe you have a need to hang on to them? Hmm? Why do you think so much commentary is written about how that verse applied to him and not necessarily everybody else? Do you think we have a deep burning need to be indifferent to the needs of others and caring mostly about our own need? Be honest. If you are hungry, and most of you have never been hungry, but if you are hungry, is your first inclination to give your taco to the next guy or to eat it yourself? God came to set up a kingdom that was not apathetic or indifferent to the needs of others, but was zealous about pursuing what was right. Ardently pursuing it. And he begins by training people, taking them to a place like Jack in the Box, telling them, buy this and this. And you're so excited you can think about eating it. You've been wanting it. He says, I don't want you to eat that. And then you look up and outside there's a man digging through the trash. Silver and gold they don't have, but I got a taco. Would you like it? And in near tears the man eats it. He trains people this way. How many have ever had an experience like that? I know. I know it hurts. It hurts me too. It hurts me just to stand here and preach this. If we do care about the needs of others, who are we most inclined to care about? Those closest to us. The ones that look like me. The ones that I came from and I look like them. The ones that bear the same last name. Really? 
Is this the kingdom of God? To take care of you and yours? Or is the kingdom of God when one man will sell the oceans to give his life for man on the other side of the ocean? Oh, that's just for missionaries. I kind of thought he sent us all out. I thought we were not only supposed to be disciples, we were supposed to be making disciples. Let me ask you something. If we meet in a restaurant and I said, Darnell, pray after me! Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Then pray with me and you can be saved. Now I walk off. Is that a disciple? No. <laughs> Here's a better question. If that's all that ever happens, is she saved? More, more than that was required of this rich young ruler. What about you? Do you think that when she says Jesus is Lord, it's required that she be obedient to that Lord to be saved? And what will he tell her to do? Get rid of self and start loving and caring for other people. So well, you're talking about working your way to salvation. No, I'm talking about working because you are saved. Working because you're saved. The man who gave us the great revelation about salvation through grace, salvation through faith as an act of grace and not by works, Martin Luther called the book of James a right strawy epistle. He didn't like it. He didn't want it included in the canon because he thought that the principles in James stood against the rest of the Scripture. Do you think there's a problem with the Scripture or do you think there was a problem with that man? have that debate some other time. If you're Lutheran, I'm sorry. I was confirmed in the Lutheran church. It's how I know those things. <laughs> Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You'll find more volumes written about what the eye of a needle is. Really, is that... I mean, that's the most vital issue facing the church today. The most vital issue is when Jesus said, I have a needle. Did He mean a literal needle? Or was it a gateway that camels had, or horses had to kneel on to get through? Is that really the most vital, important question facing the church today? How is it that we strain at that gnat and swallow the camel that is in the room? Are you holding on to something this morning that is keeping you from being the blessing to the world that God has called you to be? Could we go drop you in any situation anywhere in the world and when you leave, there are going to be disciples? And if not, what are you here for? To be blessed? Are you here just to be blessed? Because the God that we serve blesses you so that you can bless others. Well, Eric, I pay my tithes. Good, you're stealing from God if you don't. You're a thief. Sitting in church every day, you are a thief. But Eric, I, I, I went on that mission trip two years ago. Well, good, I'm proud of you for that. Are you motivated by the needs of others? Are you praying daily, Lord, use me to be your hands and feet? Is that your hope? Listen to how the apostles, then disciples, responded to all of this. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Have you ever heard a question like that in the church? No, no, everybody's saved. How dare you consider that he may not be saved? You could cause him to question his salvation. <laughs> How pathetic. If the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a demonstration of God's power, do I really need to convince you that you're saved? 
kind of believers that I've seen that make it through the years are the ones that their whole families turned on them when they got born again. The kind that lost their jobs and girlfriends. The kind that lost scholarships and walked off of football teams. The kinds that were willing to stand for Jesus if no one around them did. And you can say, well, my heart's willing to do that. Really? Tell me when you did. We are masters at explaining to everyone what is in our heart when it is not evident from our lives. Man, isn't that a hard word? I could just tell you if you give me $100, you'll get $700. It'd benefit me in the short run, right? Because I get $100 from everybody in the room. You think that's what God wants? No. I don't need it. I think He wants everything that belongs to you. Everything. And I think He wants it at His disposal. And that is so easy to say. How many of you feel entitled to more than you have today? I mean, it's my right. Why is it your right? Because I'm an American. Okay. Where is that in the Word? You know what you have a right to do? You have a right to use everything that God's given you for the kingdom of God. You don't have a right to simply sit and accumulate. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. You know why it's impossible with man? His natural state is indifferent to the needs of others. That's his natural state. And if it depended upon men solely, it would be impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. When we put God into the situation by way of Jesus and the infilling of His Spirit, suddenly there is something working against your inclination. There is something inside of you that is saying, why don't you care about Amanda, Eric? I even have fallen into the habit that there were a few in the church for a while that seemed incorrigible. I mean, it didn't matter. You could hit them with a two-by-four. couldn't change the direction. I actually said to somebody else, well, I don't care how long they attend. As long as they're not messing with the sheep, they can attend as long as they want. It's God's job to change it. Really, is that the heart of God? But it alleviated me of all responsibility, didn't it? How many things do you do like that in your life? Or is it only me that has these weaknesses? I scarcely drive by a homeless person in the States and don't think he could be in a shelter if he wanted to be. It's usually my very first thought. What about the wrongs that were done to him? What about the wrongs that he did to others? What about the hurt in his life? Sure, he could be in a shelter. He could also be saved. He could also be all so many things. Why is he not and why don't I want to fix it? Why is it for me I have to go out of the country to care about feeding people? And are you really that much different than me? Why is it a special day when I walk past a woman and see a need in her life and end up praying with her? Why is that not a normal day? When you read the book of Acts, tell me, what were their days like? Are you a disciple? Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. Faced With what you've just heard, could you stand and say that to Jesus? Jesus, I've left everything to follow you. And did you hear, we, we, we have left everything to follow you? There was nobody included in the number of disciples who had not walked away from everything in their lives to follow Jesus. What makes you think you can hang on to whatever you want in your life and still follow Jesus? Man, I can develop what uh, my Cajun friends call an envy. I can really intensely yearn for things. I remember when that 2005 Mustang came out. 
I started watching it on my computer. I listened to the sound of its exhaust, right? I had a little screensaver that came on the car drove across the screen. Amazing. It wasn't too long before I had one. Oh, was God's will just a blessing? Maybe it was. But I wonder how much time I spent during that time period really concerned about those that had no transportation. Oh, well, Eric, I mean, come on. Jesus wants me to have nice things. <coughs> Jesus didn't own a donkey. He had to borrow one just to ride into Jerusalem. Did you hear me? Jesus had to borrow a donkey just to ride into Jerusalem. But where there are believers, all he had to do was say, the master has need of it. What in your life is not at the disposal of the people around you? What would you get all squeamish and nervous about in your life if no one wanted to borrow? See, there are ways to identify idols, even in Americans. It ruin your whole day if you get a scratch on your vehicle outside? Why? Jesus had a borrowed donkey as his transportation. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them, persecutions. Isn't it interesting, a hundred times as much, including persecution. You don't hear that preached in the prosperity gospel, do you? Give me a hundred, you'll get back a hundredfold, man! You're going to be rich! With persecution. <laughs> Why is that not preached? Did we get a little selective in the reading of that verse? Go back and read the parable of the sowers. What is it that chokes out the faith of a believer? Is it not the cares and worries about these things and the deceitfulness of wealth? Friends, you cannot serve two masters. Enthusiasm. Y'all like it when somebody preaches and they have some enthusiasm? At least yes. you won't sleep. I one time attended a church for a couple years with a homosexual pastor that just did liturgy. And I'm not guessing at his homosexuality. He actually got outed years after we left the church. The people who brought me to the church were living in sin. They were not married. And there were thousands of people there. Was it a church? Well, I guess it depends on whose definition we're talking about. Are we talking about Jesus' definition or the one that passes in America? The man stood and he spoke the right words every week, but they weren't present anywhere in his church, not even in his own life. Enthusiasm is an interesting word. It also comes from the Greek. In Greek, E-N corresponds to our English I-N. It means N. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next part of the compound word is theos. Anybody know what theos means? That's right, God. Enthusiasm, zeal, passion, excitement, only comes when you are in God. Yeah. You want enthusiasm for the right things? You have to be in the right thing. You cannot surround yourself with selfishness, selfish people, bless me, lies, and the false American gospel and expect to have the kind of eyesight that God has. Turn with me to Luke 4. This is a familiar scripture, so we will hurry through it. Not really. Not really. That's one of those occasional lies I tell when I'm here. 
we're probably not going to hurry through it at all. When Jesus was tempted in the desert preceding this, when you think about all of those temptations, Jesus, you could turn this stone into a bread, what would that do? Well, it'd meet Jesus' need. What would it do for the rest of humanity? Nothing. Jesus, throw yourself down from this temple so everybody sees who you are. That would meet Jesus' need. What would it do for the rest of humanity? In fact, every temptation had to do with putting Jesus' need before God's will. Every temptation. What do you think your temptations have to do with? Putting your needs before others. Your needs come first. I gets minds. Jesus had the power of the Spirit upon Him in the 14th verse. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And the good news about Him spread through the whole countryside. Finally, somebody God could invest His power in because He cared more about the needs of others than His own needs. How about that? He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue and as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Did you hear twice the Holy Ghost was on me? Twice. Why? Because he has anointed me to preach good news... To whom? The poor. You know, we want the power of God, but we don't want the purpose of God. The purpose of God is that you care more about those in need than you care about yourself. Can you imagine how absurd it must seem in the heavenlies to have all of us join hands and pray, God bless us, God bless us, God bless us, God give us your power, give us your power. What for? How many of you need anything? If you had to buy a gift for me for Christmas right now, how hard would that be? How long do you have to sit and go through, well, he's got socks. He's got a tie. I hate his cologne, but he's got some. He could use a new hairstyle, but we can't do that for him. Well, what, what would you get me? How much time do you have to spend just to buy the people closest to you a gift because they have everything? And what do we want to do? Accumulate more. It's the American way. Let's build bigger barns. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Why was the Spirit on Him? For poor and for prisoners. Also for the blind and for the oppressed. Who wants to hear about the year of the Lord's favor? Those who need it. The ones who need it. Eric, why are there so many more mission field miracles than there are here in America? Because they have more need. The gospel is for those in need. You will receive nothing from God unless you recognize your need. And you know what you need to do more than anything else? Develop serious enthusiasm, zeal, passion for other people. So, well, I do pretty good when compared with who? The guy sitting on your left? The guy sitting on your right, your lost friends? When compared with who? Compared to the early church? How many have had their properties confiscated? Any of you been beaten for the gospel yet? The early church is the example. 
I'm encouraging you to a radical, revolutionary concept. Do something that hurts you for the benefit of someone else. What do you mean, Eric? Oh, I'm really talking about the gospel. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Something that hurt him for the benefit of someone else? The power of the Spirit was with him because his eye was on the poor, imprisoned, blind, and oppressed. Matthew 6.22 speaks of a man who has a good eye, and his eyes being the lamp of the body. And it goes on to say, you cannot serve both mammon in the King James, or in NIV it says money, and the Lord. A man can't serve two masters, he'll hate one and love the other. A good eye is an ayen tovah. It means, in Hebrew, that your eye is on what God's eye is on. And according to Matthew 6, having your eyes on the things God's eyes are on produces in you life. Having your eye on what you can gain for yourself, money, makes it your master. Why do you think Jesus required men who followed Him to sell everything? What's that verse say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe there's a process of ridding yourself of all earthly treasures so you can learn to put your treasure in the right things. And look, maybe it's just me that needs to go through this. I, I mean, y'all might have this mastered. I remember standing in front of a dumpster in the first apartment complex I ever lived in with Matthew crying while we threw away our CDs. Right? Well, they're just CDs. You know how important CDs are to teenagers? We spent five, six years investing in all those things. They were not A-tracks, Gabriel Mays. They were CDs. <laughs> you know what came next? Any clothes that we thought were unclean in some way. Went through our rooms and tore down all of our posters that we thought glorified men. I couldn't even go to a weight room. I didn't want to invest one more ounce of energy in something fleshly. Since then, I have learned that there are a lot of blessings that God puts in our life for our enjoyment. Paul said that to Timothy in the sixth chapter. He said, they are for your enjoyment. But I wonder, would it be harder today to sell everything I have and follow Jesus than it was the day I actually did? Because you have to carry that cross daily. I have friends that sold everything and moved to Germany. And they're facing a similar situation now. You know what's harder about it now? They're older. They're more established. The first time they sold everything, they didn't have that much to sell. They felt young and full of life and vibrant and felt like they could conquer anything. Now they feel that way, but not as much. Where are you in that process? Because my righteous one will live by faith. You know what works against faith? having everything. You know why we see miracles on the mission field? They don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. How many hours do you hurt before you run to the doctor? I love doctors. I'm glad we have them. How many hours? Or do I need to break that down to minutes? I know we can't stretch it into days. I've watched you. You know what? They get healed in other places because they don't have anywhere to run. They're in theos. Their enthusiasm is for God. 
So Eric, you're saying we need to deprive ourselves? Didn't you just sing Empty Me? Didn't you just sing it? Oh, you didn't mean it. That's where we are. We say things we don't mean. We sing songs we don't live. We talk about what we believe, but we don't do it. But I'm sure we're the disciples that Jesus has called. Come on now, I feel the weight of conviction in the room. My goal is not to burden you, but I do hopefully. I mean, I am trying. Like when they put a rooster in a fight and they put those little spurs on him, the metal ones. I am trying to spur you to godliness. And you know what? Simple love for Jesus. Sincere expression of it. And sacrificial living is godliness. It is godliness. Brother told me this morning, he's with some other people, and they had all of these sayings. They had read all of these books and all of these analogies, and none of it was in the Word. It's not a surprise to me that the fruit on the tree is horrible. What do you do when you examine the book of Acts and your church looks nothing like it? You reform the church or you start a new one. I'm not going to settle for it here. God called me to more than a bless me group. And He called you to a higher form of life than just the accumulation of wealth. Turn with me to Luke 12. i got just a few minutes. There. What did I tell you? I was going to read you five scriptures. We did Mark 10, we did Luke 4, now we're in Luke 12. I'll probably quote the last couple too. How about that? Are you as convicted as I am with this? Yes. We're called to lose our lives that we might find life. What happens if you try to gain your life, to retain it? You lose it. Did we think that that was just a metaphor? Or is that just for missionaries? Is that just for someone else? Matthew and I were laughing this morning. He said, you're going to sell everything you have? I said, I can't figure out anything I have that I own. We're such a dead society. I don't own anything. I own a Suburban that squeaks every time you move. That's about all I own. I guess we're going to have to settle for all of my time all of my love, all of my energy, and any material thing that moves through my life. Do you feel entitled to a bigger house? How many Mexican families could we put in the house you have? How many Vietnamese families could we put in the house you have? Do you feel entitled to a better car? How much, how much better does it afford you luxury than the borrowed donkey that Jesus rode? Maybe we need to stop looking for a way to be enriched ourselves and believe the words it is more blessed to give than receive and start focusing on those kind of blessings. You're so scared. If you're honest, you are so scared that if you give, you may not have. And if you could ever snap to the idea, if the revelation could ever get buried in you, that God will meet your every need, and that you don't have because you're not giving. Nobody would have to tempt you with greedy messages. In Luke 12, starting in verse 13. Some in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> I wonder where his heart is. Man who appointed me judge or an arbiter be between you. Isn't that interesting? Isn't he the judge? 
Isn't he the arbiter? But just like with the rich young man, you know what he's really asking? Why do you want me to settle this dispute? Who am I to you? You really going to listen to what I tell you? Or do you just want me to side with you? What a great question. Who is he to you? Is he really your judge? Or is he only your arbiter when he's on your side? I love the Lord of hosts' answer to Joshua. Are you for me or for my enemies? Neither. But I'm here for the armies of God. Jesus is not your pocket genie. He's not here to bless you. You are here to do what He tells you to do. My whole life belongs to Him except this and that and the other. He told them a parable. No, let's pick up here. Then He said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Except us. I mean, it consists in the abundance of possessions for us. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink. And be merry. Let me ask you, isn't the American dream that you store up enough now that you can live out the rest of your life retired and happy? And the most successful people you know are the ones that uh, achieve this the fastest? Isn't it? It's almost like we've never read this parable, isn't it? Let me build up my 401k. Let me build up my mutual funds. Let me build up, build up, build up so that life will be easy. What makes you think God called you to an easy life? You're so much better than Paul. How did his life end? With the sound of his head hitting a bucket. So much, so much better than Peter? How did his life end? Crucified with his wife while upside down. So much better than who? You can't name one person in the Word that you can describe their life as easy. You can describe their burden as easy and their yoke as light. You can describe them as peaceful men that could not be pulled out of a sense of complete connection with God. But you could never describe them as men with easy lives. Let me ask you, what is your pursuit? Have you fallen into spiritual apathy, indifference towards other people, in the pursuit of an easy life? Or is your desire the same as it was supposed to be the day you got born again? I will quite literally forsake all, sell all, burn all, die today, tomorrow, the next day, and every day thereafter, that your good news might spread around the globe, and that I might see the poor receive the gospel, that I might receive, see the imprisoned freed, that I might see the blind eyes opened. Kind of makes you wonder about that church in the book of Revelation that thought they were rich and they were naked, huh? Why don't we go ahead and uh, skip down to 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat. Have we ever worried about what we eat? Not really. Why might they be worrying about what they're eating? Oh, that's right, they gave up everything. Why aren't we worried about what we're eating? Oh, there it is, isn't it? We've saved enough in reserve to make sure our needs were met. 
How radical do you want to be, church? I started this year by preaching about radical revolution. I'm telling you, I'm scaring my own family and I know it and half of you may leave. But the thing is, I would rather have five that are completely sold out than 500 that are only partially committed. I'm trying to spur you to something. I'm asking you to take a journey with me. Said, Lord, how real is this gospel? How far can we really go? I didn't have any problem giving away a truck the second year I was born again. It was in 1980 that leaked oil. <laughs> but it was all I had. It'd be a whole lot harder for me to give away the truck that I have now. Mm. Is your life a little bit like mine? Because it's not supposed to be. Maybe if we want more power, we need more repentance. Maybe we need to change our direction. About your body or what you'll wear, life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? <clears throat> Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little trust. Why do we hang on to everything? Why do we accumulate? Because in our hearts we do not trust God. And we are indifferent to the needs of other people. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them, but seek His kingdom, and these things will be given you as well. The secret to meeting your every need in your life is putting God's kingdom first in your life. The problem with that statement is you have heard it so many times you believe you're doing it even when you're not. People who do not tithe have the audacity to tell me that the kingdom is first in their life. That's not possible. You're sitting before me a thief. It's not possible. Not only is the kingdom not first, you're stealing from the kingdom. People who do not care about the needs of others but their every prayer request is for themselves. Have the audacity to say the kingdom is first. If Jesus is an afterthought in your job choice, if Jesus is an afterthought in your home choice, if Jesus is an afterthought in your decision-making process, and really what you do is run to say, Jesus, I need you to bless what I've already done, the kingdom is not first in your life. I don't... I don't have any motive for telling you this other than I desire to see you free. Free. And what America has accepted as Christianity is not free. It's still a slave to all the wants and desires that worldly people have. Hear these words. I think he could be speaking to us. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Do not be afraid, little flock. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. 
a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot have treasure in two places. You have to let go of one to get the other. You have to let go of one to get the other. We're going to a practical level. What are you telling me? I'm telling you work this out with fear and trembling. And be willing to sacrifice. It is the only way that you make it into the kingdom of God. He's not Lord if you will not do difficult things that He tells you to do. John 17, 20 is one I'm going to quote to you. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. In Greek, it's homothumaden. In Hebrew, it's ihad. It means everybody in here is plural, but you are moving with one purpose. And it's not on self. It's on others. Father, just as you were in me and I am in you, in the same way that Jesus was one with the Father, one in purpose, Jesus wants us to be one with each other, unified around one thing, meeting the needs of other people. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here is the dirty little secret. The reason that nobody believes what the American church says is we are not unified around the needs of other people. We are selfish. This is why some of the most famous atheists in history have said, Jesus I don't have a problem with. It's His followers that I do. You could never honestly examine the life of Jesus and find fault with Him. He loved everybody around Him. He poured Himself out. We cannot say the same thing. We are protectionist of what is ours. We are storing up for what our needs are. And there's very little selfless, sacrificial giving. There's a family in here that received a car. Title, taxes, everything paid. Beautiful. I mean, it even runs all of the time. Adam said it's a Dodge. <laughs> And what an extraordinary thing. Doesn't that impress you? I know it impressed the people who saw it. Why is it so rare? If we are the disciples of Christ, why is something like that phenomenally rare? Can you honestly read the book of Acts and tell me you think it would be rare in the first century church? If you're in Him, then you must have in Theos, enthusiasm. Zeal, eagerly and ardently pursuing the needs of others. Here is our last scripture and it will go quickly. It is in Acts 4. I really am going to close. Matt, come on up here. We'll close with a song. In Acts 4, pick up with me in 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. You ever been in a prayer meeting where the floor actually shook? And it wasn't because somebody like me was jumping up and down? If our floor doesn't shake, we might need to ask why. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God 
boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had with great power. You know why they had great power? They were selfless. They had their eyes on what God's eyes were on. He will pour unlimited power through us when our eyes are on what His eyes are on. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. Well, there may not be a needy person in our church because we're Americans. But are we the church? Or do you believe we're a part of a much larger worldwide body? Are there needy people in the body of Christ? Yes. And it should not be so. Why are we entitled to so much while others are starving? There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who own lands or... Jesus, how hard is this? Houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. One of my favorite moments in this church is when we went to build this. I watched people sell four-wheelers that they loved. I watched people sell dining room tables that they loved. Sell treadmills. Give up their tax returns. Take money out of retirement. Because they believed that this was God's will. It should be no less important for us than it was to put sheetrock on these walls. It should be no less important to meet the needs of believers worldwide. This is why our church is going to India. This is why our church is going to Mexico. This is why our church is doing the things we're doing. It's why we, even though we've experienced tens of thousands of dollars of loss in this last year, it's why we're increasing our support for missionaries and not decreasing it. I believe that if we give up everything, we'll find everything that we need. I'm inviting you to join me in a radical Christianity. And I am not trying to fleece the sheep. I even put a jar in front of the church that whatever you put in it, 100% goes to the poor and nowhere else. The poor and nowhere else. I bring you pictures of the food. Some of you can't go, I know. But you know what? We can pray. We can do without something for someone else's benefit. I'm inviting you to find the power of God. Y'all stand to your feet. <laughs> Mighty God, Lord, your words are sweet like honey and they are also bitter like peppers. Lord, I feel encouraged and comforted. But I also feel cut to my very core. I find myself like Israel asking, Lord, what shall we do? And I thank You for that. Because at least You've moved me to a place where I'm willing to do something. Lord, I'm asking that Your hand would move upon this small group of people. Lord, we may be like David facing Goliath. We are a tiny little group of people. But I'm believing you can knock down giants. And while the world runs after Haiti, Lord God, 
I am believing that you have a purpose for us that the world is not flocking to. Lord, we're asking that you would meet our needs as we meet the needs of others. The same way that we ask that you would forgive us as we forgive others. Lord, we're asking that you could flow through us and in us. Our last message, mighty God, you gave us was now you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So then what? Well, we found the what. And Lord, we want it. We want to do the things that you do. We want to be your hands and feet. As we worship, Lord, move your church. Mighty God, as we close our service, don't let their hearts close. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You are still holy, even when the darkness surrounds
leading of the Spirit in here. But I also know we got kids in our children's church. Let's join hands and pray. I got the one with the biggest wingspan. However you do it. <laughs> Have you ever been praying in a circle and felt real power? Yeah. 